Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad to see you, especially on Time Change Sunday. You made it. You did well. There'll be some folks coming in in about 35, 40 minutes thinking they're on time. But you, you got it right, all right? If you're our guest, a special welcome to you today. Uh, on your seat when you came in, there was some paper. You had to move it to sit down. Inside the envelope was a card that looked like this. If you're our guest, if you'll take a, time, a bit of time to write your name and your address down, put this in the offering bucket at the end of our service, We'll send you a certificate for some free Chick-fil-A food. It's our way of saying thanks for being with us. We'd like to have a record of your visit. We won't bother you too much. We're not going to call you or visit your house. We call it a no-hassle guarantee. We're just glad that you're here and want to acknowledge that. If you're a regular attender around here, just give us your name and your email address, and you'll be prepared to participate with what we're doing at the end of the message here when we take some steps. Well, you've joined us for the third week of our series where we're calling The Elephant in the Room. And each week I've brought up this little elephant that I got as a gift from Pastor James John, the pastor who leads the orphanage and the church planting ministry that we support in Kerala, India, where about 40 plus girls and now a handful of boys as well and some pastors are receiving monthly support from members of this congregation primarily. And in addition to that, we have, over the last several years, made dramatic investment into the campus there in Kerala where a lot of the ministry takes place. And so in India, when they care for you and when they want to give a big gift, especially if money's a challenge, they'll find a hand-carved elephant, kind of an icon of one of the biggest things in India, and they'll give you that gift, and it represents the largeness of their gratitude, of their love for you. And so I've got a lot of these from James, but... In America, there's been a phrase that has developed called the elephant in the room, and that is that large thing that is there that nobody seems to want to engage. It happens in families. Other people looking at a particular family can see challenges that should be dealt with. They can see it with clarity, and people in the family are experiencing it. Sometimes they even know that something needs to be said or done, and yet people don't deal with it. It happens in your place of work. It happens in churches. It happens in life. And so this metaphor of the elephant in the room are these big things that are hard or difficult to talk about such that people often don't. But in this series, we've been dealing with some of them very directly. And so last week when we uh, chatted together about hypocrisy uh, in the church, um, the response from you, I guess many of you in the room, perhaps uh, some that aren't in here, was, was overwhelming to me as you shared with me some of the challenges that you've experienced and things you've seen in personal emails to me and on your connect card. Um, I'm just blown away that the Lord was able to use uh, that message in a helpful way. And today I'm hopeful that there'll be some similar kinds of engagement as we have a conversation that I've just discovered doesn't get talked about a lot. And yet we feel it. Before we kind of get there, though, let me take you to a place in the Bible where this same tension existed. One day, Jesus was walking around with his disciples. It seems like he did that almost every day. And he walked around with his disciples, and they came up on a blind man. And there, there was some controversy around this blind guy because Jesus um, was known to be a healer. And so this blind guy is kind of calling out for Jesus to heal him. And while all that is going on, a conversation develops. And the conversation goes something like this. What? Why was this man born blind? Why? Now, underneath that question, it's a very natural question. It's not a wrong question. It's the most obvious question. Like, why, why does stuff like that happen? 
Why do people have horrible things happen to them? Another place in the New Testament where Jesus was just going about life, um, there had been in a neighboring city a, a tower that had been built, and one day while commerce was happening around that tower, something happened and the tower fell, and it killed several people. That made the front page news there in the Galilean Times, I suppose, whatever they called their newspaper. It certainly ran the course of conversation in the community, and Jesus was aware of it. And so even in the days when Jesus was physically present, people had questions about bad things that happened. How does this happen? Why does this happen? It's the most natural thing in the world to talk about. Years ago, when Jill was pregnant with our first child, um, I got a phone call one day from a friend about another friend. And the, the short end of the story is, is that a dear friend of mine, very close to me, he was in my wedding. I wanted to have been in his wedding, except I couldn't travel. Jill was in the last few days of her pregnancy. And so I got a call from a mutual friend that on his honeymoon, he drowned. He went out for one last swim. And there on the last day of his honeymoon, my, one of my absolute best friends, uh, drowned right there. And I remember hanging up the phone thinking, you know, why? This seems so tragic. It's just, why does stuff like this happen? I had a very similar feeling just a, a few days ago as I'm watching the news. I was in Florida on a, on a trip, and I turn on the news and discover that there had been a shooting just a few, uh, about an hour's drive from where we were in a, in a school. And that seems to have been something that's happened with some kind of regularity. And every time I'm struck with the same kind of emotion. Like, that is so wrong. It shouldn't happen. Why, why does this stuff happen? We should fix this. And the problem that we're describing here, that we're talking about here, are the, the most normal kinds of emotional responses when we experience challenges and we observe pain in other people's lives. We watch evil on display. It's normal for people of faith and people who don't have faith to ask deep questions about the world that we live in when those things happen. I've wept with parents as they watch their child die slowly of an incurable disease. I've stood at the casket as people walk by and kind of shake their head in disgust that another life is senselessly lost. In my own life, I watched as cancer slowly robbed me of, uh, of my mother and the relationship that we had and and it really begs deep, deep issues. Now, the goal of what I want to do today is not make you aware of pain in the world. I want us to talk about God and the intersection of pain and evil in the world. And people who write about this stuff, um, in fact, there's so much writing about this stuff that you have to wonder, like, how common is this? And I've discovered in my four sh uh, short years of ministry and adult life that everybody to some degree has a measure of pain. Everybody to some degree has confronted evil. Everybody to some degree, degree has seen something very, very bad happen, either to them or to somebody that they love. And there's a, a common question that, that often rises. So if you want to turn to your message notes, I want us to just kind of talk through this stuff, and my hope is, again, not to elevate the fact that these things exist, but to talk about how should we think about it? What, what can we do about it? 
What do we say about it when we're talking to people we care about and they're going through a season of life where there's a disease or somebody close to them or there was a, a, a car accident that took somebody's life well before it seemed like it should have? Well, what, do we, what do we say in moments like that? What do we think in moments like that? Now, again, the people who write about this stuff, it happens so often, it's written about, there's a whole genre of literature and a philosophical thought called a theodicy. It's kind of like an odyssey with theology, so it's a theodicy, the journey through thinking through these kind of troubling things. In our own Bible, there's a couple books that deal with the issue of pain and evil pretty directly. You have the book of Job, where otherwise innocent man has a ridiculous amount of pain come into his life. And the book makes it clear that he doesn't particularly deserve the pain, but something else is going on. And then in the New Testament, you have the writings of Peter, uh, the, probably the oldest of the disciples of Jesus, the twelve. And Peter talks an awful lot about pain that happens in the life of followers of Jesus because he was writing at a time when followers of Jesus were very faithful, but the Roman government had become oppressive and brought incredible amounts of pain, unjust pain, into the lives of of Jesus' followers. But before we get started talking about this very deeply and the so what's of it, I want to acknowledge point number one in your message notes that you received when you came in the door, kind of a moment of honesty is that many times when I hear Christians talk about this, when I am watching the news and they have a commentator representing our faith, many times Christians are very unhelpful on this topic. Like, like I always feel embarrassed when there's a hurricane in the South. Um, You know, ugly things happen, and it seems like the reporters can't wait to get to a trailer park and interview people. And then they don't interview like normal people sometimes. It's like they want to find the most on-edge character and start talking to them about life. Or let some uh, event happen, even if it's not all that tragic. Somebody robs a store and they find the most interesting character to interview. And then when they interview them, you can't hardly stop watching the interview process and you've lost sight of what they're even talking about sometimes because of the strong character that's presented in the uh, interview. Well, sometimes I feel like when... Christians are interviewed about important world events, I kind of feel like it's the same kind of thing. They find an extreme character with extreme edgy views, and they talk about things, and I think, wait, I'm a Christian. I don't even agree with that. I I would never have said it that way, and I'm not sure that's the best way to put these ideas forward. So what I would like to do today, if it's at all possible, is to have kind of a, a balanced conversation where I'm not even trying to take you anywhere. Like, I'm not even trying to take you on a journey today. Uh, what, what I want to do is just simply acknowledge we've all been there, and I want to I talk about it in a way that begins you to think about it, to begin to think about it maybe differently, maybe for the first time in a measured way. I'm hopeful today that you're not in such a pressure cooker, that your life isn't so upside down, that you, you, like, you just need me to provide you the answer, because today I don't have the answer to the issue of why evil exists in the world and why people who don't seem to deserve it go through incredible pain and why there's injustice. I don't have the answer for that. But we can talk about it in helpful ways and begin to set some sense of boundary around this issue that I think actually helps us. And then my hope would be that if anything ever happens in your life and a reporter throws a camera in your face, you won't embarrass all of us, all right? So number two then. 
where was or where is God seems to be the recurring question I hear when world events, when personal tragedy, when an A long season of difficult stuff happens in a person's life. Where's God in this? That's not a bad question. That's a good question. And that's a helpful question. It's a a natural question. See, there's three big challenges. This is not in your notes. You may want to write it down. Three big challenges, really, that are at work in these kinds of situations. I'm just going to give them kind of three, three broad categories. All right, so here's the first one. There's kind of a theological challenge. We even around here um, accentuate the challenge because we sing songs, for instance, about our good, good father. We sing songs about how good God is. I mean, even today, we sung about the power of God to break chains. So he's good and he's powerful. So theologically, then, how do you wrestle with the fact that a good and powerful God allows, provides an opportunity for, coexists with pain and evil in the world because I've sat with many people who in moments of honesty look me in the eyes and say to me something like this I know you believe he's good but he doesn't feel that good to me right now and usually in those moments I I don't know what to say certainly I'm not going to get into a theological argument at that point because they're going through a thing and I I can relate to that so where is God is a very good question. There's the theological challenge. Then there's kind of a philosophical challenge. Even people who don't have faith just wrestle with the idea that an all-good, all-powerful, and all-knowing God, if those things are true at all, if, like, if, that, if it's true at all, then logically evil shouldn't be allowed to exist. At least there's some kind of logic that can lead you to that conclusion. And if he's really good and really powerful and really knows all, didn't he know that that guy was going to do that thing to those people? And if he knew it, why didn't he stop it? So a few years ago, there was a pretty popular book written about this topic from a person of faith, not the Christian faith. It was actually the Jewish faith, a guy by the name of Rabbi Harold Kushner, probably the best-selling book on this issue that we're talking about. And here was his presupposition. Here's what he believed, that God was, in fact, all good, but God wasn't powerful, that God was limited in his power. And so God can't stop things. He needs you to stop things. And so at the end of his book, there was a great call for people to be engaged. It just acknowledges the real challenge between a world that is broken and fallen and regularly evil and the God who's very, very good. But what I have found is most people don't even spend a lot of time thinking about the theology or the philosophy there's really kind of a third challenge. There's, a, there's an emotional challenge here. And for me, this is where the rubber meets the road. It could be because I'm more a pastor than scholar. I don't know. It could be because I deal with an awful lot of people. It could be because I've been through it myself. But you know what I mean when I talk about the emotional problem of evil or the emotional problem of pain. It's the deep and profound revulsion that we feel toward pain, our personal pain or the pain of people that we love. It's, it's a deep-seated no. We just want to scream no at things. It's a sense of outrage that we feel when we witness blatant atrocities and horrific suffering. It's kind of a howl of the soul. And it echoes down deep inside of us. 
when we're confronted with cancer or genocide or rape or hurricanes or car wrecks, school shootings, earthquakes, sex trafficking. I mean, it's just the nightly news. We just know it's not supposed to be that way. And when it comes close to home at all, we don't have a detached engagement of the idea where we're philosophizing about it. No, there's an emotional part of this. It's real. There's, there's no way around it. I'm not sure how we deal with it fully. I can't make all the tension go away, but we can. We can turn to the question, where was God? And if we do it, I think, in a healthy way, we can set some boundaries around it. We can begin to build some foundations that last through very difficult and incredibly ugly seasons. We can do that for ourselves conceptually, but we can do that as people of faith and become a light for other people. If by chance you are going through a really ugly season right now, things have happened to you, people have hurt you, there's a disease that you're facing, whatever it is, if you're going through that, there is incredible hope to be found. And there is real power to be found. And there really is a good God to be engaged. What I have found, he almost always, the Lord almost always takes us on a journey. And that journey has ups and downs. There are peaks and valleys. There are turns that are anticipated. And there are turns that are not anticipated. My hope is, is that this conversation becomes a part of the journey for you. And it reveals to you the true character of God. And it builds in you the ability to trust him more. Even though I don't have a magic wand or the specific verse or the three-sentence prayer you can pray to make it go away, I can point you towards a God who can be trusted. And that brings me to point number three, just acknowledging the challenge again, that in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament, it seems like it's never answered, at least in the way we would like. The New Testament never answers the question, God, why did this happen? So if you're looking for the biblical answer to why this happened, I can't take you to a verse. I can't take you to one story and give you the definitive answer that resolves all the conflict. That doesn't mean the Bible doesn't say anything about it. It does. But there isn't one place to go and go, here's the Lord's ideas for you to know that when you know them, when you put them in deep, when you grab hold of them, you'll be able to kind of mount over these challenges. That passage doesn't exist, and if it does, I haven't found it. Now, even in the story I was telling you earlier of Jesus and the blind guy, when Jesus was asked, why did this happen? He gives us a hint at an answer. And it's an answer that was true specifically in that situation. But even in the answer, I'm not sure all the tensions are resolved. When Jesus was asked, why was this man born blind? He said, because God's going to be glorified through this. And at one point, my faith says, that's amazing. God's going to be glorified through this. But on the other hand, I go, wait a second. This guy's been blind his whole life. That's an awful difficult path for God to be glorified. And so there's an inherent tension there. And by the way, that's a true statement. One thing we can say about this in terms of building a foundation is is that God wants to be and intends to be 
and often is and certainly is, a, is trying to be lifted up and glorified in his character put on display every time somebody on this earth goes through pain. And regularly we get a glimpse of these kinds of things. We get a glimpse where where something bad has happened, but there seems to be not necessarily a silver lining, but underneath the tragedy story, there's often stories of faith and bravery and hope and redemption and restoration and lessons learned. So very often, God does bring kind of glory to himself and help to us through stuff. But I'm reminded at a moment in Jesus' life, and if there was ever a person with perfected faith, it was the Lord... When he came and lived on this earth, in Mark chapter 15, in your message notes, at Jesus' darkest moment, when incredible evil had been brought against him, there was incredible injustice in his death. In Mark chapter 15, while Jesus is hanging on the cross, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now he's quoting an Old Testament passage here. David's writing at one of David's gloomy seasons, and he says, God, I feel forsaken. Now, the rest of the passage, David reminds himself, as he often did, he strengthened himself in the Lord, and he reminds himself that his feelings aren't true in the fullest sense. They're true for him. They don't always reflect all the reality. And so even when Jesus yells out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're not necessarily declaring that God is completely disengaged but we're back to the emotional challenge. It has to have felt very, very lonely as Jesus took on the weight of the world and he hung there. If you've ever felt that way, by the way, like you've been where Jesus has been. If when you were going through a dark season in your marriage, if you've had to face the illness of a loved one and you prayed and the prayers weren't answered the way that you wanted and you wondered where was God... That's normal. That's not unhealthy. That question, though, isn't meant to be the end of the conversation. That's what we're trying to do today. Stretch that conversation out a bit. Make sure the conversation continues. We're encouraged in seasons like that to pray. Have you ever thought about what a prayer is? A prayer is just an ongoing conversation with God. So if you're going through one, if somebody you know is going through one, giving the advice, talk to the Lord about it is very, very good, even if you feel like he's not listening, because it keeps the conversation going. In marriage counseling, they tell you, as long as a couple's fighting, there's hope. But when one of them basically emotionally disconnects and says, I'm done, now we got trouble. Well, there's some truth in that theologically and on your journey of faith as well. Wrestling with the Lord puts you in the company of Jesus, of Job, of Peter, of Jonah, most of the prophets of the Old Testament. In fact, one prophet in the Old Testament, Habakkuk or Habakkuk, his whole book, which is about incredible injustice that's happening, is about his wrestle with the Lord, so much so that his name literally means the one who wrestles with God. And these issues cause us to get in there and wrestle. Paul acknowledged that sometimes how we experience life and what we see 
is sometimes very different than what's kind of going on in the spiritual world. So our perspective is limited. And he talks about that in 1 Corinthians, again, in your message notes. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Like, you can see, but it's upside down, sometimes reversed. It's dimmed. But there will come a day when we'll see face to face. Now, in this life, I only know in part, but then I'm going to know fully, even as I'm fully known. Now, the New Testament never answers the question, why did this happen? Number four, in the New Testament, this, this question, God, to what good purpose will you work this? That replaces God, why, as the helpful question. When I'm talking with somebody who's going through something, when I'm going through something myself, one of the things I try to do is I try to say that why is a natural question, but why is a difficult question to answer. And sometimes even I know part of the answer, I don't know at all. But there is a very helpful question that Jesus seemed to bring people back to. What is the good purpose God can work through this situation? If you're going through something right now, let me just ask you. I wonder... If in the mind of God, there is some good purpose that God can bring out of the situation you're in. A financial situation, okay. I wonder if there's some good purpose God can bring out of that. Your own health, okay. I wonder if there is some good purpose that God can bring out of that. Years ago, while I was under the tutelage of one of my mentors of amazing leader with a very kind and gentle heart. And we went to visit a man who had just gotten news that the degenerative issues in his back were not going to be repairable. And the future for him looked very different than the life he was going to be living. Now, I know I'm going to be a pastor at this point, and I'm listening with bated breath to how the pastor that I'm learning from is going to engage this guy who's just learned incredibly horrific news. Like, how do you deal with that? How do you talk about that? Like, how are we going to bring God into this? And what I'm going to share with you is just one way it's possible, but it gets to the issue of, God, what good can you bring out of this? So as we're talking, there's a lot of emotion and tears in the room. There's evidence of some anger and disappointment. This would be normal. It's all okay. But at some point, my pastor, mentor, leader looked at this guy and he said, I think you have in front of you an opportunity to do something that I've heard you talk about a handful of times. You've said to me a handful of times that you'd love to have greater opportunity to spend some time in the Word of God and grow in your understanding and teach because you've got these grandkids that you want to have an influence on and sometimes you feel ill-equipped. And he looked him dead in the eyes and said, look, I don't know all the reasons God's doing this. But I know, I know this, you're going to have some time like you've never had before. And you can make investments in yourself and your grandkids in a way that you would have never been able to do if something like this hadn't happened. It didn't make the problem go away. It didn't fix it all. It didn't change the medical report. But I watched that guy's eyes at that moment. Now, they didn't go from sadness to total joy. He didn't go, yes, thank you, Lord, that my back will never be the same and I won't be able to work like I... He didn't do that. But there was a shift. There was a shift and some good purpose was able to be seen in the middle of the ugliness. 
When you read the New Testament, I can't take you to the passage where God says why these bad things happen to you at that school or around the world. But I can take you to passage after passage where God implies this, that because he's a good father who has only good things for you, he will work good in every situation in your life. Those situations that you call good and those situations that you call bad. Those situations that motivate you and encourage you and get you running and the ones that seem to stump you and get you stuck. This is what Paul was talking about when he wrote to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 5. We also rejoice in our suffering. Rejoice in suffering. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. That God is going to build something in you when you're going through this stuff. There's an opportunity for your faith to be strengthened. And I think that we regularly underestimate the value of our faith to God. The strength of our faith. And by faith, I don't mean believing that it's all going to be good. That's kind of like having faith in faith. That if I have enough faith, it's all going to be good. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your faith in the basic character and nature of God. Down deep, when the chips are low, what do you believe about God's heart for you? That's what's at stake in moments like these. That's why people ask, sometimes with exasperation, where's God? Because underneath that question, for many people, not all, but for many people is a basic assumption that if God was really present and if God's really good, I should basically be able to float through life without any personal pain. We have an aversion to it. And if not personal pain, if God was really good and if the gospel is really true, then those kinds of things that we watched on the news just a few weeks ago and probably will watch again, they wouldn't happen. If God were really good and really loved me, then I wouldn't be going through this ugly situation in my marriage. Now, what do you believe about the character and nature of God. And what kind of a journey is the Lord taking you on? Is the point of the journey to elevate you to a place that you never experienced pain? Is that God's goal? Or is it God's goal to develop something inside of you, something good and worthwhile as you go on a journey in a world that is broken and sometimes twisted and sometimes outright evil? So where's God? Let me give you the simple answer. You may want to write this down. But I think that the incarnation is God's definitive answer to the emotional problem of evil. That Jesus came, took off the royal robes of heaven, and chose to live a life just like us. And one writer says that he was tempted in every way like us. That all the pain of life, all the challenges of life came to bear on him in a real way. He's not a detached God like the Greek demagogues playing with people's emotions for their own pleasure. That's not what's happening here. That he was with us. He lived among us. The living God is not a detached observer or an absentee landlord. He doesn't stand aloof from pain and suffering and the evil that are, that's so central to this topic. He's the God who was born, who bled, who dies, and who identifies with our sorrows by becoming what the Bible calls a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That day that we call Good Friday that's coming up in a couple weeks... 
It wasn't good in many ways. It's good for us. God worked it for our good. But it's an ugly display of evil, selfishness, greed, and power. It's about as ugly and dark as can be. But we call it good because it was. And, and there's, there's the thing that God can do that I can't do. God can take something evil, dark, and twisted, and sick and make it beautiful. It's called redemption. There are people in this room who have been through incredible evil. It should have destroyed them. It should have buried them a long time ago. It should have made them hide under a rock and never come out out of pure need for personal safety. That was their life. But the good God, who saw it all but didn't stop it, has been at work. Not, not removing the story, but redeeming the story. Not preventing the story, but bringing a testimony out of it. An incredible good has happened in the middle where there was darkness. So where was God? Let me give you a couple thoughts. I think that I'm learning more and more that God is everywhere hurting and broken people are. God is everywhere hurting and broken people are. I could go into explanations why evil exists at all in the world. There are a few. This has been wrestled with for thousands of years, going back to what is considered one of the oldest stories in the Bible, the book of Job. Right? So we, we could talk about some of that. And, and in simple terms, I think there's a lot to be gleaned from looking at the idea that God wanted free agents, free moral agents, not simply robots. And to have freedom, there has to be the possibility of rebellion. I, I think that helps with a lot. It doesn't answer all the tensions, but it helps me a lot. But what's helping me more and more these days is I'm discovering that everywhere hurting people are, everywhere broken people are, God is present. I alluded to this earlier, that in dark stories, there's often the understory of faith and bravery and help and care and people showing up in generosity. You have, like I, been amazed when everybody else was running away from buildings, other people were running into them to save, to rescue. I, I, I've been with people who sat by the bed and heard uh, of dying people and heard them say things like this. I'm ready to go. I, I'm at peace. The Lord has been with me. And I've just seen that if you look Everywhere there's tragedy, you don't have to look very far. But there's evidence that there is good and there is God present. Number two. I'm really loving the fact that God is everywhere. God's people are helping hurting and broken people. You want to know where God is? God, for instance, around here is at the Hamilton Mission a few weeks ago where there's incredible generational poverty that just is sad. 
Some of that is in my family's history, generational mental poverty. A few weeks ago, through the generosity of somebody in this church, I had a chance to kind of like literally see it up close and personal for the first time in a very long time. And I was thrown right back to other places in my life where I had a chance to see poverty, generational poverty at work and just the brokenness and the hollowness and the shame that goes with that. Not even talking about the very real needs of where's the next meal going to come from. I was thrust back into the reality that, that that's a real issue not that far from here. But I was there because somebody said to me, Ben, I've got some money and I want to help this family. Would you help me help them? And there was good there. I watched about 70 of our folks at the Hamilton Mission clean and organize and uh, prepare food for people that were going to come in and be served by the mission that we support. And the idea was is that just because they're getting help doesn't mean they should be in a dark, dingy, and disorganized, disheveled place. So our folks rallied there. And I thought, in one sense, this place represents an awful lot of darkness. But wow, what a light it is. Because wherever God's people show up to help hurting people, God's there. I thought about India as I was thinking about this message. Girls who are rescued, literally pulled off the street. One girl about to be drowned in a river in the home that we help build, enlarge, and support. And that's about as dark as it gets, because the truth is, for every one of those girls, their future was early death or most likely some form of sex trafficking. But not one of them has to go through that because of God's goodness displayed through God's people, because God showed up through the life of people, many of whom have their own dark stories, but God was writing a redemption story in their life, and out of the blessing that God gave them, even though part of their life is dark, they've turned around now, and they're helping others. At our membership meeting next week, we'll share it with our members first, but with all of you, our upcoming Cuba trip, and you'll be given an opportunity to go if you like. And it's our first few steps into a country that when I hear the pastors that we're going to support talk about it, has been darkened by evil and greed and power. But there's a growing church. There's real authentic Christianity. The gospel is alive and well in Cuba. We're going to help it with a few of our American dollars that most of us won't miss anyway. We're going to see the power of the gospel at work in communities. Over the next few years, we're going to expand a campus, we'll build an orphanage, and we'll see God do great things. I think about just the families around here. This week I got from our kids' team seven unique, distinct stories written from parents whose kids and whose families have been impacted by the ministry that happens in the walls of this church. Yeah, God is everywhere. God's people are helping, hurting, and broken people. And I, it would be a miss if I didn't acknowledge this. God is here today. He's never far away from the cry of the hurting and the broken. 
But how he responds isn't always to elevate them away from their pain. How he responds is through redemption and through a story he's writing towards a higher good and a greater goal. And I'll confess, sometimes those are elusive to me, but it brings me back to the core question. What do I trust about the character of God? Is he really good? And I'm just learning, friends, more and more, that God really is good. And he knows what he's doing. And prayers that I used to pray, asking God to do certain things now, having grown and understood and lived, I'm grateful he didn't answer them the way I asked him to answer them back in the day. Because his good was greater than I could see at the time. So what's God doing then? Let me give you a couple things here. I think that where God is, what he's doing is this, is he's calling his people to kind of wake up and engage. Wake up and engage. See, if God's writing a redemption story in your life, part of the redemption story he's writing is this, is he's not here to just help rewrite your history and give you a better future. That's part of it. But it was never just for you. That's far too small a goal that just your life gets better. God does not want that for you. In fact, he's going to elevate your life in part, and it has nothing to do with you. He's going to elevate your life in part so that you can become part of the redeeming he's doing in other people's lives. It's true. That your redemption takes its full maturity when it isn't just about you anymore. I know when you come back to church after a long time or you come because there's some pain in your life that what you want more than anything is relief and help. And there is a lot of that to be offered. But you should know, just truth in advertising here, our end game for you, if I have a goal for you, it isn't just to help you. I don't want just to deposit some good truth into your life. First of all, I want you to wrestle with the truth from God's word. We're Bible people here. We're not simply good advice people here. All right? But secondly, secondly, I want you to get on the team, God's team, making a difference and pushing God's agenda in this world. In Romans, again, Paul to the church at Rome, and he writes these words, and do this, understanding the present time. So, like, look around you, see where you are, understand the time. He says, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The metaphor he's using here is, is that in a dark world, guess who wears the armor of light? You do. You do. And most of you who've had a redemption story already begun in your life, it began because other people who were bearing the armor of light that Paul talks about here were engaging you and the Lord in your journey. And at some point, you disrobe yourself of the darkness, you choose to put on the armor of light, and you engage what God's doing in this world. Number two, God is developing us into hope-filled, loving, and growing disciples. Hope-filled. This is hard when you're under pressure. But again, it goes back to what do you believe the Lord is doing? What story is he writing in your life? Is he really good? And if he is, then even the pressure you're under right now has redemptive potential. 
Again, Paul to Romans. We also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts. So what can you do? I think when we think about evil in the world, we can begin and we can continue to work hard to bring light into dark places. Peter, who wrote about pain more than anybody else in the New Testament and evil, here's how he writes it, describing us. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful lights, into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You have no idea what your life, wholly devoted to Christ, how it can produce light in a dark world. God took a confused fuller brush salesman a few years ago and turned him into the greatest evangelist this world has seen since the Apostle Paul. His name was Billy Graham. God took a baseball player who loved the accolade of the crowd named Billy Sunday and made him one of the greatest evangelists of the last generation. God took the daughter of a single mother who prayed daily in a destitute city, abject poverty, and turned her into a saint who served the poor and impoverished in Calcutta. Her name was Mother Teresa. You have no idea. The light that God can bring to a dark world through your life wholly devoted to him. So I suspect that at this point, both atheists and theists would agree that there comes a time in everybody's life where they have to decide, am I going to work for the light? Am I going to make it about me or am I going to give in to the darkness? Am I going to work for the light, make it about me or give in to the darkness? But for Christians, it isn't just an option. It's a calling. It's a privilege. We don't have to do these kinds of things. We get to. We don't have to invest in India. We get to. It's part of the redemption story that God is writing. I don't want to be self-serving here. And I, I, I try to be very cautious about the stories I share to make sure that it doesn't put anybody in awkwardness. But the story I'm going to share would make somebody feel very awkward. But I'm going to do it anyway. All right? So this year, my dad called me, and he said, hey, I got something to tell you that I can't tell everybody else. I said, okay, what is it? Now, my, my dad's a great guy, but you never know what he's going to say sometimes. So I'm like, all right, what are we going to do? I have no idea where this is going. Uh, he said, so this year, I made less money than I've made in a very long time. He's retired, living on his investments. He made good money, but less than he's used to making. And he said, but I've given away more money this year than I've ever given away. So I said, what does that mean to you, Dad? And he started crying. And he said, the Lord has been so good to me. To think that a little poor boy from the mountains of West Virginia who dropped out of school in 10th grade so he could hunt and provide food for his siblings could give away, and then he named the amount of money he said, let me tell you what that is. That's a really good God. And he had no idea what I was going to speak on today. But I thought that's the story of redemption. 
work. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. I wonder what story of redemption God can write in your life. Let me give you my last point here, number two. We can put our trust, you can put your trust into God's character. You don't have to have faith in faith. You don't have to have faith in the outcome, but you can have faith in God. 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, he writes these words. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Our momentary troubles are producing for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In his letter to the church at Galatia, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. But my favorite one of them all, in his words to the Romans, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. The next time you're going through a thing, or if you're going through it right now, the question that you're going to have to wrestle with, the one that I think produces the most return on investment is the question, what do you think of the character of God? What is his heart for you? And is he going to bring something good out of this, and do you trust him to do it? I don't know all of the answer to the problem of evil, but I know for you, I know for me, that deciding today that my God is good and he's good for me and where he takes me is good for me, that goes a long way to helping me navigate the evil and the pain that shows up in my life. And I think it'll happen that way for you as well. Why don't you grab out your connect cards and let's take a couple steps together. I've been talking about a God who has a plan and a purpose. And you begin to experience that when you give him your life. And so next step A for us every week is the same thing. Today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord is what it says on the card. And you can take your pen that we provided and check next step A. Put the card in the offering bucket in just a few minutes. And in your heart you'll be saying, God, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself, so I'm going to trust the work that you've done. But you really are good. And I'm going to invite Jesus to cover my sin through his death and resurrection. And I'm going to do my best to live my life for him as if he's in charge. If you want to do that again, check the box, put it in the card. or Put the card in the offering bucket when it comes by in a moment. And we'll pray for you. You're not joining our church, nothing like that. We're not going to harass you. We're going to send you an email about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Our next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. If you have questions about baptism or want to be baptized, this is your step. Next step C says this. It says, hey, here's the truth. I'm struggling with some deep, painful experiences. Please pray with me. You have a family around here who will lift you up in prayer. So if it's true for you, and if you want to tell us what it is, you can use the back of your card. We'll pray specifically. But in general, if you're kind of stuck a little bit, it's okay. There's no shame in that. Don't give up the conversation, though. Don't throw in the towel. Keep pressing in. God is good. And he's writing a redemption story in your life. Next step D says, someone I love is struggling with some really painful experiences. Would you please join me in praying for them? You probably know people whose faith has been shaken, whose journey is extra tough. We'd love to join with you in praying for them. 
And then next step E says, hey, I'm interested in joining 4C's dream team. That's just the volunteer team that makes things happen around here. These are the people who, to the best of my ability, push back darkness as good as anybody else around here. If you'd like to join the team of what God's doing around here, check the box and somebody will help you get aligned with an opportunity that serves you well. Why don't you set aside your Connect card? And for those of folks who call Four Corners home, this is our opportunity to give back to God a portion of what he's blessed us with. You heard me talk a little bit about my dad's story coming from abject poverty and then watching God over his lifetime with faithfulness give him an opportunity to give back. And that's the kind of God that we serve. But I want you to know this about the people in the room around you. If you're our guest today, you have the privilege today of sitting in a room with some incredibly generous people. Long before you showed up, somebody wrote the check to help pay for the seats that you're sitting in. Long before you came, somebody wrote the check so we could pay for the, the expense of being in this building. If you had kids to drop off, you watched as we're building some construction over there. That's because somebody decided they wanted to be a part of what God was doing and they gave money there. Now, money's not the only way, but people in this church believe that it is a way they get to be a part of what God is doing in this world. We're grateful to partner with them. It happens not only in our building here, but literally around the world with what God is doing. And you can be a part of that right now. Many of you have already given online. Thank you for that. You can use the offering envelope. You can text to give. You can use the kiosks in the lobby to support. But every penny you give goes to the mission of what God is doing in this world. And he's doing an awful lot. Hey, let's pray about our next steps and our offering right now. All right, bow with me. Father, I want to thank you for every everyone's story in this room. We're on a journey. And somehow you're able to manage it all for our good. I don't understand how you do it, Lord. Sometimes I'm confused by what I see, but today I declare again my trust in you. You really are a good God. You really know what you're doing. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters in this room who are struggling today that whatever they're struggling with, their journey would produce greater faith. We pray for our loved ones who are going through difficult situations. God, would you grow their faith? Maybe, Lord, you would even use us to do it. Thank you for the privilege of being light in a dark world. And thank you for the privilege of being able to give back a portion of what you've blessed us with. We're grateful that we get to, not that we have to, but we get to be a part of what you're doing. Now, God, would you take our gifts? Would you take our next steps? And would you make them go far and wide for your good name and for your glory? Would you accomplish your work through what we're doing here? We pray it in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.